Well, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Mary Caldor. I direct LSE Global Governance. Um, and thank you for coming. I, we're very denuded of people, which I think is the result of the snow, because we were expecting a big turnout today. Uh, but anyway, thank you, those who've managed to make it. We are here to launch the CIPRI yearbook of 2010, which is the how many? 41st. 41st yearbook. And I'm really pleased to say that we have Robert Neild in the audience, who was the first director and responsible for the first yearbook. So this is the 41st. And we thought we would focus today on nuclear issues because that's a very central part of the yearbook and always has been. And we've got three fantastic speakers. Uh, Ian Anthony, who's research coordinator at CIPRI and director of the CIPRI program on arms control, disarmament and non-proliferation. Um, Shirley Williams, who probably doesn't need any introduction. <laughs> Everyone knows her, she's in the House of Lords very well-known Liberal Democrat, and she was advisor on nuclear proliferation to Gordon Brown. And Lord Brown um, of Ladyton, you may remember he was, um, he both served on Northern Ireland and he was Secretary of State for Defence in the Labour government and the Prime Minister's Special Envoy to Sri Lanka, but I certainly came across him when discussing nuclear issues. So that's great, but before we start, I'm going to ask uh, Stephanie, who's the Communications Director of CIPRI, to give us a very brief introduction to the yearbook. So thank you very much. Thank you, Mary. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, dear friends and supporters of CIPRI. It's a pleasure to be with you here tonight, and we really appreciate that you could make it, despite of the weather. I'm here to welcome you also, especially on behalf of Dr. Bates Gill, our director, who would have liked to be here, who unfortunately got stuck on the west coast in the US due to an airplane major damage, and you know, the following consequences, weather and everything. So uh, I'm pleased that my colleague Ian could come in last minute, and me, we tried to make you feel as welcome as Bates would have done. So um, I hope that all of you have come across the yearbook at some point of your studies, of your work. We are now in 2010, as Mary said, on the 41st issue. The yearbook has been around since 1969, and uh, we hope that you appreciate it not only for its data and reference work, but also for the analysis and insights my colleagues put into this work each year. And uh, just to give you some highlights for the 2010 issue, um, some surprises actually, despite of the financial crisis globally, we did not see that re reflected yet in the military expenditure figures. If I just take out one of the most prominent data sets, there still was an increase of 6% in real terms to the earlier year, and amounting up to an astonishing number of 1.5 trillion US dollar, which is probably a big figure, too hard to imagine sometimes. But if you think that um, it is, you can also put it in this way, that it's a 50% increase in military spending since the year 2000, in the last 10 years. So we see 
unfortunately still this trend. Um, we will, of course, monitor and you will see later in 2011 then whether the financial crisis finally might have had an impact on the figures. We will reveal that later. And just, uh, of course, as usually, the U.S. is still in a top position with 661 billion U.S. dollar. And as we are in the U.K. tonight, I just wanted to give you the U.K. figures as well. They are ranking after China and France on the fourth uh, place, so to say, with 58.3 billion, according to our figures. And, uh, but of course, the yearbook is much more than the data on military expenditure, arms production, arms transfers. Um, and just let me highlight two points of analysis of the current issue. One is also very much related to the issue of this evening's discussions on nuclear disarmament. It's an analysis chapter of the former U.S. diplomat and disarmament expert James Goodby from the USA. Some of you might have come across his name in your work. He uh, gives some practical steps that states should take if they are serious on nuclear disarmament. It's quite a hand-on analysis. I hope you will find that interesting. And as well also a review of the European Atlantic Security Institutions such as the NATO, the European Union, the OCE. And also this chapter illustrates how these institutions probably need to find some new dynamics and some new action if you want to justify their continued existence. And last but not least, leading into today's issue, of course, CIPRI annually monitors the nuclear weapons arsenals all over the world. And uh, in this issue, we report that worldwide we have 7,500 operational nuclear weapons. And of these 7,500, we actually have 2,000 ready to go within the next minute. This is what I think a very high number. It's spread over these countries, the eight nuclear weapon states, US, Russia, China, France, India, Pakistan, Israel, and the United Kingdom. And just to put the United Kingdom into relation for tonight as well, according to our figures, our researchers estimate that the UK possesses 160 of these 7,500. And if you then globally even look at all these nuclear weapons in spare, inactive storage and sort of repair, not ready to go but still around, we actually count over 22,000. So I think it's, there's room and probably a necessity for disarmament, as we would see. And let me finalize just with uh, introducing our partner from Oxford University Press outside, Jenny. She's here with us today, and she is offering the yearbook as a 20% discount rate if, for those of you who had not a chance to buy it yet. Or you can also pick up a flyer which guarantees you this, the discount if you want to pick it up at a later stage or you want to give it to your library or some contacts. And I would also mention then that we even have, which is very timely for the topic, brought some copies of our director's most recent book, Governing the Bomb. It's also a very timely 
um, issue in cooperation with the De Democratic Control of Armed Forces Institute in Geneva, which gives the democratic oversight of the nuclear weapons and presents eight countries' case studies, and of course one of them also the UK. So I hope you find a lot of food for thought, and please look at CIPRI as a reference. Turn to us for questions. If, you, if we can be of help, input for your studies, um, we are always happy to help you. And thank you for that. I thank you for your interest, and I'm happy to turn over to our expert panel for tonight. Thank you. So we'll begin with Ian telling us a little bit about what's in the yearbook. Okay, thank you very much, Mary, and thank you for the opportunity and everything that you've done to um, make this event possible. We're very grateful um, uh, for the support that you've, you've shown for, for the yearbook. Um, what I wanted to do just very briefly in, in about 10 minutes is look in a little bit more detail um, at what the yearbook says about the general tendencies that we see in the world uh, in respect to nuclear weapons, um, both the arsenals of those countries which are known to have nuclear weapons and also a few words about programs in a small number of countries which have um, made steady progress towards the technical capacity they would need to make nuclear weapons if they chose to do so in the future. Now, as, uh, as Stephanie has already pointed out, one of the things that CIPRI has always tried to do is monitor as best we can using the open source information that's available to us, uh, the general tendencies uh, in nuclear, world nuclear forces. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, it's not wrong, just uh, for my own reference, really. Um, now, as, as uh, Stephanie pointed out, we try to produce this aggregate figure each year of the number of nuclear warheads deployed uh, in the eight countries of the world that we believe have um, nuclear forces. Uh, as she pointed out, around 90% of those deployed weapons are actually in two countries, uh, the United States and Russia, uh, which explains why those two countries have such a special responsibility when it comes to thinking about um, arms control uh, in the nuclear area. Uh, we have reported in the yearbook on a ninth country, uh, North Korea, which has certainly demonstrated its capability to develop nuclear weapons by carrying out um, nuclear tests, but has not, according to the information we have, actually operationalized its nuclear arsenal. Now, when we look at the tendencies which we report in the yearbook, they really show a continuation of the continuous reduction in the number of deployed weapons that we've seen um, since the end of the Cold War. Uh, so although we could argue that we still have a significant overhanging um, uh, nuclear inventory, uh, which is still a leftover of the Cold War, nevertheless, the general tendency has been continuously downwards in terms of the number of deployed weapons. Um, but beneath that kind of general aggregate finding, there are two tendencies uh, which perhaps are slightly contradictory. One is a tendency for many of those weapons which are taken out of deployed status um, to be moved into storage or into reserve status rather than being eliminated in an irreversible manner. So although we see continuous shrinking number of deployed weapons, uh, we also see the maintenance of reserve capabilities which would give countries, if they wanted to, the possibility to reverse that tendency. 
Uh, and secondly, in the yearbook, we also report on a um, tendency for the countries which have nuclear weapons to modernize the arsenals that they retain, so that although they're smaller, um, nevertheless, they are kept uh, in a state where they are following the, the latest trends, if you like, um, in uh, technology development, uh, so that the forces still remain extremely potent, even if they're smaller in number. Um, now, turning very briefly to the uh, issue of nuclear arms control, uh, the yearbook reports on what's been a very significant effort to revitalize uh, arms control as an instrument of security building led by the Obama administration um, in the United States. Uh, now, whereas most of the arms reductions prior to his taking office had actually taken place according to an imperative which was really reflecting a national logic, uh, both uh, security policy logic and also um, the effects of financial constraints. Uh, what Obama has tried to do is move the process of arms reductions into a framework which is legally binding, um, verifiable, uh, transparent and predictable. In 2009 and 2000, which is the year we're reporting on 2010, uh, we've also tried to monitor as best we can the nuclear programs of a small number of countries who are working systematically on nuclear programs that would give, which have characteristics that cause proliferation concern. And here I would just pick out two countries really, uh, which are very much a central concern and focused on in the yearbook. Uh, one is Iran, um, which continues to make steady progress towards the capacity um, to produce highly enriched uranium, uh, one of the fissile materials which is a main and essential component of a nuclear weapon. Uh, we've also reported on the efforts of the international community to try to um, hold Iran um, to the standards which are contained in its various legal agreements, including with the International Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, secondly, we've reported on um, an as yet unexplained event in Syria in 2007, but which continues to be a, a, a serious concern, certainly um, including at the IAEA, uh, where an Israeli attack destroyed what was believed to be a reactor which would have given Syria the capacity to produce plutonium, which is the other fissile material uh, that would be an essential component of a um, nuclear weapons program. So the yearbook doesn't find there is a general tendency towards nuclear weapons proliferation. On the contrary, if you look at the past few years, you see that more countries have given up their nuclear weapons ambitions um, than uh, the number of countries which seem to retain them. But nevertheless, you do have a small number of extremely important um, and difficult to resolve cases of genuine proliferation concern. Uh, so these are the overall uh, principal findings of the, of the yearbook when we look at the general issue of developments in nuclear weapons, nuclear forces, and nuclear arms control. So with that, I hand the floor back. Okay, thank you very much, Ian. And I will now turn it over to Des Brown. Okay, uh, thank you very much indeed, Mary, and um, thank you. Uh, Cipri and the uh, LSE 
uh, for the invitation to say a few words and take part in this discussion um, this evening. I had the uh, Cypri handbook in my hands for the first time about an hour ago, um, and I had a quick look through it, and I have to say, it looks to me, from you know, that quick glance at it, to be an impressive reservoir of uh, some quite significant uh, uh, explanatory uh, information to equip people to make a contribution to this debate. And part of my ambition at this stage of my political career is to help um, people to make just such a contribution to the debate, which is raging in all too few communities across the world um, about these very important issues. Um, the handbook addresses, it seems to me, um, in accessible terms, uh, some quite complex information, but also some quite complex ideas um, about the concept of deterrence and other related issues which are all important to um, the arguments that we need to make to people like me, but mostly to politicians who um, have uh, leadership power about the decisions that, that we must make um, in, 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 in the next uh, few years if we are to achieve or make a contribution to the ambition that President Obama set out that we all aspire to of a world free of nuclear weapons. The second point I would make is that I noticed that the preface was uh, drafted by Rolf Achaeus, who is a member of the European Leadership Network that I uh, am a member of and that we are developing across Europe to advance this uh, debate and embed it in the politics of uh, governments and societies across Europe. Uh, I know Rolf well and I've got to know him very well and I'm a great admirer of him, but I, I, I guarantee you that when he, he signed off the preface in May um, 2010, he didn't realise that the information in the book, so far as the United Kingdom was concerned, would so quickly become out of date for good reasons, uh, wh wh which I'll come to in a moment. Um, I, I, I want to restrict my remarks broadly to the uh, issues that were in the uh, blurb that was sent out in anticipation of this meeting about the NATO strategic concept and um, issues to do with Europe for a reason which I hope to, to explain to you. But before I do so, um, I, I just want to say one or two words about where we've got to over the past couple of years because those of us who work in this area, and there are some people in this room whom I recognise who have been making a significant contribution to maintaining um, this debate, uh, do recognise, even if the public don't, that we've made some significant progress over the last couple of years. I think broadly it is at jeopardy at the moment, and I'll explain why, uh, why I think that is. Um, but, we, but we ought to, I think, um, understand the context that we're living in and what can be achieved. And, and the first point I want to make is that the NPT review conference it was a success. It was just a success, but it was a success. And that's crucially important that we maintain that very fundamental treaty which has provided for half a century or more the framework for controlling um, the context of these weapons and gives us I think the framework um, to, to rid the world of them if we can support it continually. Um, it avoided collapse without agreement, the, uh, 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 which, which was what happened in 2005, um, but the commitment to a special conference on the Middle East weapons of mass destruction free zone in 2012 was crucially important to the avoidance of that collapse, and that's a point I'll return to later. Um, the second point I want to make is that President Obama's speech in Prague in April uh, 2009 was a highlight to many people across the world. I mean, some people, uh, I, I think, should be able to remember the way in which the world cheered to the echo 
um, the, uh, the, the, the speech that he made. We should never underestimate the value of having a US president who both thinks and is willing to say that a world without nuclear weapons is something to strive for and not just to wish for. Um, and, and we should castigate ourselves um, across the world for not giving him the support that he has deserved um, to be able to tackle more strongly the domestic politics which has undermined that ambition. And we need, I think, to take stock across the world about exactly why we do not give an American president. It may be for some people because he is an American president, but we need to ask ourselves why we have not given this man um, the, the support he needs. We should be asking our political leaders why they are not making speeches saying every sane person believes what this man believes and we should be working um, to achieve that goal. Um, the the, the US-Russia New START agreement was limited in terms of actual nuclear reductions and Ian, I think, rightly made some cogent observations about numbers. But politically, it was of enormous significance. Um, this was the first real arms control negotiation between the Americans and the Russians for two decades. And, and although we still await U, uh, ratification in the US Senate, if it doesn't happen, then we need to appreciate that it is less likely um, that we will see significant disarmament momentum in the aftermath of that. And we should, and I repeat this as Europeans, be doing everything we can to encourage those who are recalcitrant about this issue in the United States to realise that we, as their allies, want this treaty uh, ratified. It is crucially important to the continuing relationship with Russia. Um, and, and, and we should be very careful about the arguments that we put forward for that, because we should not, by arguing, as some people are now, from our side of this argument in the United States, that we need to do this to give an eye on Russia, destroy the future. Uh, possibility of relations um, with Russia. And we should also discourage the US President from, as we heard today, investing $700 billion um, in infrastructure for future nuclear weapons that will be a rod for future President's backs um, about, about what they can achieve. But despite those comparatively optimistic, I mean, there are other, um, there are other op optimistic signs. Despite those optimistic signs, um, the risks of proliferation are growing, as the book shows. Um, you know, India, Israel and Pakistan have already entered the nuclear club without signing up to the rules of it. Um, if Iran gets the bomb, then perhaps others will follow, although I'm very worried about the self-fulfilling uh, prophecy nature of cascades of nuclear weapons in certain areas. And my own experience of going around the world talking to people about these issues doesn't suggest to me that despite what WikiLeaks exposes, that people actually will ha have an aspiration um, to get nuclear weapons because other regional powers get them. And certainly that's not been the case in the Middle East in the time that Israel has had the weapon. And we should be very careful that we don't create a momentum for that. But the situation in North Korea is not improving and it has the potential to destabilize at least East Asia. And we should be very careful. We know, whether we accept it or not, but we know that terrorist groups want to acquire nuclear weapons. And making the security of these materials uh, an issue of truly global significance is very important. Um, and that's why President Obama, as part of his uh, speech, identified nuclear security um, and why the Fissile Material Cut-Off Treaty, which is being blocked presently by Pakistan, is so uh, important. Um, but despite these proliferation risks, it is undoubtedly true that the nuclear weapon states in the NPT are not doing enough to disarm quickly enough and they are by that straining the confidence of their non-nuclear partners and the credibility of the NPT grand bargain. Um, the strategic implications of all of this are profound. Uh, the world that we live in at the moment suggests 
to most observers that nuclear deterrence is a far less persuasive strategic response to a world of potential nuclear regional nuclear arms races and nuclear terrorism than it was in the Cold War. And that thinking is going on most profoundly in the United States of America, interestingly enough. Um, it's, not, it's deeply embedded in the current administration. It is not prevalent in all of Americans' politics. But, the, but thinkers, including people who have been involved in these issues, some from the 1950s, are starting to debate these issues with some considerable intensity. And we're not doing it enough um, in this country. Now, the UK has been active in some of these areas. This may be kind of counterintuitive to most of you, but um, I, 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 as a part of the decision which we made in government to renew the UK's nuclear deterrent, we believe that we gave the whole issue of disarmament quite a significant move forward. And there were some of us in government who only did the one on the understanding that we would do the other. Now, what is the evidence of that? Well. My colleague, uh, former Foreign Secretary Margaret Beckett, delivered a very important speech in the United States at, the Carnegie, uh, at, at Carnegie, which was hardly reported here at all, setting out our position in support of that goal. And I myself, and this was not reported in the United Kingdom, was the first ever Defence Minister to go to the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva and speak about these issues and embed them in you know, our policy going forward. Um, the, the current government, again counterintuitively to people, to what people might think, and, and substantially because of, of, of economic circumstances and the engagement of the coalition of Liberal Democrats in it, and there's no doubt about that, um, maintained a rhetorical commitment to this goal of a world without nuclear weapons. But actually, they have done some quite significant things. Missed by most people in the, security, the Strategic Security and Defence Review, the government announced an intention to reduce the number of operationally deployable warheads from 160 to 120. They redefined minimum deterrent quite significantly, reducing it by um, about 25%. And importantly, and these were the important decisions, and I think they made them for economic reasons, but it doesn't matter, they moved the decisions about the possible replacement or refurbishment of warheads beyond the current spending review period and the main gate decision in relation to the replacement of the boats. Now, exactly what the effect of that will be on their ability to be able to continue to provide continuous at sea deterrence is a matter for debate and analysis, but it's a debate and analysis which I hope will take place. But that's not enough, and I understand that. We need to do more. Um, and and if, 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 if we're to have meaningful discussions about this, we need to engage the P5, we need to find ways of engaging India and Pakistan and we need to find ways of engaging Israel. Now, it's all very well for us to say 95% of these weapons are in the hands of two countries, and they should go on with this. And when they get their figures down to something that we can join, we will join. And that tends to be the kind of rhetoric that we've had up until now. But that's not an appropriate position for the nature of the world that we presently live in and the nature of the world that we may be handing on to our children. We have to face up to the responsibility that we have as Europeans, in my view, um, to make a contribution to this. Whether we are nuclear weapon states, in the case of Britain and France, or non-nuclear weapon states, who are, in my view, in any event, mostly by their uh, membership of NATO, de facto nuclear weapon states, whether by law they are nuclear weapon states because they, they are protected by the nuclear weapon systems of NATO and operate under the extended deterrence of the United States of America. So. I, I, I mean, 
I could speak at length about these issues, but I will just identify what I think Europe needs to do, and we can discuss it in more detail if people want to. First of all, there is an urgent need to move forward on the debate on what are called theater nuclear weapons in Europe and NATO's future nuclear posture. To the extent that it failed to deal with these issues um, in Lisbon, the leaders meeting in Lisbon, the summit and the strategic concept that emerged from that was a significant disappointment. I'm not surprised actually because I think that the consensus nature of NATO moves towards the status quo and an inertia on these issues and the best we were ever going to get out of them when they met together in the absence of clear leadership from certain people you know, was something approximating to the status quo with a promise of a review in the future. Now, we've got that promise of the review in the future, and we need to get our act together, not just led by Germany, a few countries, but European countries, to deal with these issues. We cannot have a situation where uh, the nuclear posture of NATO is a more regressive position than the nuclear posture of the United States and the United Kingdom, as it presently is, because of the recalcitrance of, of France to, to engage in this debate. Um, the second thing is that we need to recognize that these sub-strategic nuclear weapons, these tactical nuclear weapons, serve no purpose. They have no military efficacy. I have never met a military man who, 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 or woman who suggests to me that they have any military efficacy. They, in my view, fail the first test of a deterrent. They are not a credible weapons system in terms of operation. Um, and the challenge for NATO, I think, is simultaneously to maintain its own cohesion uh, while moving to strengthen the global non-proliferation regime and reducing its reliance on nuclear weapons and this particular system in, in, uh, 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 because that would be a very significant signal to the, the other countries of the world in terms of the NPT. Second, we need to take our responsibility as Europeans to advance the European-Russian dialogue on nuclear issues. You know, we, we cannot expect the Americans to carry the burden of that for us. The NATO-Russia dialogue needs to be substantially a European-Russia dialogue because we share the same landmass and we have collective security uh, challenges. Um, we need to recognize that some, nuclear, uh, some NATO states, in the wake of the Russian invasion of Georgia and the perceived Russian use of its energy resources to intimidate its neighbors, have concerns over possible future military threats from Russia and may take a less progressive view of this than some of us who are further away from Russia would. But we need to accommodate those concerns in a way that the answer to, the answer to which does, is it nuclear weapons. But we have to recognize that Russia, for its part, considers itself to be encircled by hostile forces in Europe and in Asia. And its concerns over a significant asymmetry between NATO and Russian conventional military forces and in worried about US plans um, for ballistic missile defense, although they appear to at least have found a framework for moving forward as a result of the NATO uh, summit. The third thing that we need to do is that we need systematically to identify, assess, and improve the disarmament and non-proliferation contribution of a wide range of European institutions. And by that, I don't just mean institutions of the European Union. I mean uh, institutions which operate in, in, in the industrial area, institutions that operate in civic society. We need to ask ourselves systematically across Europe, what are our nations doing in relation to disarmament and what are we doing and, uh, to improve non-proliferation and to assess and make that contribution um, significantly to the debate worldwide. And fourth and finally, we need to promote the idea of a weapon of mass destruction free zone in the Middle East. We in Europe need to be active in the promotion of that. Um, the, 
the, the situation there is extraordinarily challenging, but we have a commitment to the non-nuclear weapon states, and in particular to the Arab states led by Egypt, to a conclusion and a positive conclusion of the NPT to deliver progress on our promise to have that conference. And we shouldn't kid ourselves that this process will survive yet another disappointment for them. Now, the, the, the Egyptians have actually moved out of the leadership um, of, 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 the, um, of, of the groupings of those non-aligned states and others, but the people who have moved in don't make it any easier um, for us to be able to move forward. Um, and, and, and we should not destroy the credibility of the most important strategic partner we have um, in that regard. And there are a, a significant number of um, ways in which we in, in Europe can make a contribution to that, not the least of which is to dust off the Euratom model um, and, start, and, and, and start developing that um, in, in some way in relation to controlling, um, controlling access to materials and materials um, and, on, on a regional basis. Um, I have tried in these remarks, um, without uh, spending 40 minutes doing it because the explanations for this normally take me longer, to identify for further discussion areas where I think we in Europe can make a contribution to the ambitious objective that we all signed up to when we cheered either out loud or quietly um, when President Obama gave us the leadership that he did. Um, I, uh, I, I celebrate the fact that this that this resource, this book, um, gives a, a wider audience of people um, access to some of the concepts and ideas and information that will be necessary to have this debate and equips them. Um, and I'm happy to discuss uh, any of these issues which I have um, generated. And I'm delighted to be followed by Shirley Williams, who um, works with me both in in the UK Parliament and across Europe on these issues, and we've travelled a bit together. Um, she's an iconic figure in, the, in this area, um, and, 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 and I think you should listen to her with great care. Well, thank you very much for a fascinating talk. I must say that I was involved in the first yearbook, and I remember we were told that we were writing for the Egyptian delegate to the Council on disarmament in Geneva. So we were trying to provide background information. That was our brief. So perhaps we've Absolutely. still succeeded. <laughs> so anyway, I'm delighted to ask Shirley Williams to speak next. Okay, thank you very much, Mary. Um, first of all, just a word about CIPRI. I think it's, uh, we're, we're very grateful for the huge amount of work CIPRI's done. And it seems to be significant that CIPRI is a specifically Scandinavian contribution to the debate detailed, objective, carefully thought out, carefully researched. And it's perhaps worth adding to that that, of course, um, if you look at the one of the most fascinating indices in the CIPRI book, it is the so-called Global Peace Index. And what it shows, not surprisingly, is that in the top ten countries that the Global Index suggests um, are, as it were, most constructive with regard to trying to create conflict resolution and peace, no less than five out of the ten are Scandinavian. We are very grateful, thank God, for the Scandinavians. They are the one set of countries that seem continually to behave very, very well indeed and to try to patiently build a safer world. So thank you to Cipri and to you, Mary, as part of Cipri. Um, secondly, I, I want to talk a bit, I, I think what Des has done is to set out, as I expected him to do, the core issues um, in the political sphere, as Cipri sets out the core issues 
in the issue on the, in the subject itself. And like uh, Des, I'm conscious of the fact that a number of people in the audience, not least Robert Neild, are very, very expert in these areas. So we shall be uh, cautious in what we say, so that we won't be immediately pulled up and taken to pieces. Um, if we go, I'd like to, what I do is compliment Des. I can't, I don't think, replace him. I think what he's done is very effective. But I want to compliment him a bit by picking on some of the wider global issues which um, feed into the question of whether we can actually move towards or even one day achieve the Obama vision. Um, I think the place to start is by saying that it's very easy to underestimate how much Obama has achieved. If you read um, some American newspapers, and above all if you listen to Fox News or one of those other somewhat tainted media, you will get a very, very false impression of what has been done by Obama. But the truth of the matter is that he and his administration, and I've rarely seen an administration where the commitment to that objective is so strong and so widely felt and so passionate, if you like, he's actually wrenched the world round to a situation where it's at least possible to talk realistically about the gradual and ultimate abolition of nuclear weapons, and that's simply a staggering achievement. Let me list them very quickly. There's a nuclear posture review, which for the first time puts the American strategic aim of a nuclear deterrent into the context, very specifically into the context, of a conscious limit on the use of nuclear weapons. One of the key areas of the nuclear posture review, which was, uh, of course, brought together earlier this year, is that the United States will not use a nuclear weapon against any country which is not itself a nuclear weapon state. That's a very important step forward. And it means that the United States is willing to accept substantial limitations uh, on its own use of power. The second thing that he's done, which is very important indeed, was to start with a series of declaratory statements, of which the Prague speech was um, a, a very significant one, as Des has said which set out exactly what the goals were and the need of other countries to work with the United States to, to achieve them. He has removed, literally in one presidency, the endless confrontation between the United States and Russia, which under Clinton took a more benevolent form, but he's actually moved it away from confrontation altogether by suggesting that the safest path to peace is for the cooperation to occur between Russia and the United States. In case you think those are just words, then look very closely, and Des referred to this as well, at the quite remarkably radical proposal that Russia and the United States should work together on ballistic missile defense. You may remember that George Bush Jr. specifically suggested the sighting of ballistic missiles around Russia, specifically in Poland as the Czech Republic, which would have looked to Russians as an attempt to encircle them. And indeed, for a country with such a long history of being invaded, that's a very reasonable approach to end up with. In fact, what he has done, Obama, is specifically, first of all, to get rid of, to trash, if you like, the original proposal for putting BMD in Poland and the Czech Republic, incidentally, in both cases, welcomed by the country concerned. It wasn't imposed by the United States on them. And secondly, to argue that the United States and the Russians should together create a ring of missile defences addressed substantially to what are sometimes called, I think, sometimes rather foolishly rogue states, but frankly, probably with Iran in mind. The third thing that he's done, 
is to completely refuse to look at things like bunker buster, new generation of nuclear weapons. Now the tragedy is these had to agree to modernize the existing nuclear weapons. What that means is essentially within the yield limits that we have in the existing generation of nuclear weapons. And why has he done that? Well, bluntly, because it's his only hope of getting the START agreement through the US Senate. And he has pledged to Russia that he will do everything in his power to get it through the US Senate so that the Russians can get it through uh, the state Duma in Moscow. Incidentally, the Russians are beginning to gradually lose patience. Uh, I was in Moscow in uh, May. We met with the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Duma, and he was asked by Mr. Medvedev's um, uh, chief of staff how long it would take to uh, get ratification of the START Treaty through Russia. The answer was, how long would you like it to take? <coughs> it does help sometimes not to be a democracy. Um, but it's quite clear that Russia will, without great difficulties, uh, agree to ratify the treaty once Medvedev, especially if he's got the rather sinister Mr. Putin behind him, uh, to give a wink of approval, it will get through very quickly. There will be a few problems about that. The problem, of course, I'll just say a few words about this, is the US Senate. And anybody who knows, and I think I can say that I do, uh, the way in which Congress works will recognize that very unlike almost all European legislatures, there is very little executive power that can be used against the US Congress once it has a majority for the other party. And of course, in addition to that, there is the quite sinister commitment by some on the far right of the Republican Party and that crazy bunch known as the Tea Party, I sometimes think their tea must be spiked for one thing or another, um, to actually try to wreck Obama as a serious president, not because of nuclear issues, not even because of health issues, but simply because they have now decided they're going to destroy this president and they're going to make sure he doesn't get another term. That's something that probably many people didn't realize we would have to contend with. Until six months ago, the assumption was that the START Treaty would be easy to get through and the trouble would only come with the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which optimistically, late last year, was supposed to be the next one that would prove difficult, but the other ones would be easy. Now, that's what I want to say about the United States and about Obama, but I completely agree with what uh, has been said by Des, which is that the Europeans, not easy because the Poles in particular, and the Czechs as well, are much more inclined to very tough guarantees of NATO to tactical nuclear weapons and all the rest of it. So it won't be easy, as Des has said. But I think if we don't help, in every way we know how, it's going to be very difficult for Obama to push his program through. In that context, it's worth mentioning tonight, just to make sure we have everything up to date, that Des and I have been involved together in an attempt to try to lobby the whole of the Senate uh, by getting the signatures of something like 16 outstandingly outstanding states persons of the United Kingdom, ranging on the conservative side from Malcolm Rifkin, uh, on the Labour side to Des himself, um, and then right over to three senior chiefs of the defence staff to write to uh, senators begging them to look closely at how beneficial this treaty would be. In that context, let me say one other thing which many people don't know, and that is that it carries with it a much more sophisticated inspection system than Start One, its predecessor. And you may not know, many people don't know, 
that in December 2009, the entire inspection system agreed between Russia and the United States ceased to exist. It may be carried on out of goodwill, but there is no legal commitment on either country to continue with inspection, to continue with observing whether uh, nuclear weapons are securely maintained, because there is no treaty anymore under which these things operate. And to my mind, it beggars imagination that the Senate should be willing to consider continuing with a system in which there is no inspection and no monitoring of nuclear materials. Uh, let me turn from that to a couple of other areas, um, again, complementing, I think, what's already been said, particularly by Des. Um, I think he, I agree with him that the P5 have a very substantial responsibility, the nuclear weapons powers, uh, to take matters much further in order to persuade the non-nuclear weapons powers that they are actually keeping their part of the bargain under NPT. Now, I've talked about, about uh, Obama, and I've talked a little bit, at least, about uh, Putin and Medvedev. Uh, my own personal view, for what it's worth, is that Medvedev is much more a man of the globalised world than Putin is. He's a man who thinks beyond the box, who doesn't think just in terms of national sovereignty, but is actually capable of thinking in terms of a global commitment, and that makes it very like, encouraging in many ways. The third country, France, cont uh, contains its own particular interests. It's perhaps important that France is at least willing to talk, as Deza said, about cooperating with the United Kingdom on things like the maintaining of nuclear deterrence, because it offers some chance of reducing the combined nuclear deterrence of the two countries before we get on with much more extensive attempts to reduce nuclear weaponry. But it is worth saying that one of the characteristics of France is that she sees the nuclear weapon as an extremely significant part both of her sovereignty and of her status in the world. She will be a difficult country to move away from nuclear weapons. I think much harder myself than the United Kingdom. I don't know whether my other panel members agree with me. But for France, it is, in a sense, the, the, the gold standard, the acid test of her own standing in the world. And as she falls economically behind Germany, so the nuclear weapon becomes more and more the, the total evidence of her standing in the world and of her power and status in the world. China is a difficult one. It's never been an aggressive power uh, to the outside world. In some ways, one has to say that it's behaved with extraordinary, uh, with extraordinary restraint for example, on the issue of the two nations, two systems with one nation uh, settlement was made over Hong Kong, which in some ways is a model, a striking model of how to bring about a solution to an, an, in, a, a potential conflict um, in a way that enables the differences to thrive. And I pay her due respect for that. On the other hand, in the nuclear field, she has been infuriatingly untransparent, very reluctant to say, so she still hasn't said, how many nuclear warheads she has, what are her future proposals, what are her stocks. She has been the least transparent of the five countries which form the P5. I think not personally, I think, out of aggressiveness, but probably out of a very deep suspicion uh, towards the other countries. But the trouble is you can't move easily forward on the necessary elements of transparency. And don't forget that transparency and verification are twins. You can't have the one without the other. It's difficult, therefore, to move towards tougher verification if you have one of the major P5 countries which is not willing, so far, uh, to be very clear about what its possession of warheads and nuclear missiles is. Finally, let me move from that to what I call, what I think, what I regard as the most difficult of the group, and that's the so-called nuclear weapons powers, which are not 
uh, stated under the NPT uh, nuclear weapons powers. There are nuclear weapons powers and powers that have nuclear weapons. Who are they? They all are not part of the P5. They are India, Pakistan and Israel. They are the most dangerous group, partly because there is no structure that contains them. They follow to some extent, as most of you will know, the NPT. They do sit in IAEA, but they will not accept the hope of a legal structure in the world for global governments, to use one of the titles that Mary has used for this particular session. And it's really difficult because, unfortunately, the P5 have played ducks and drakes in relation to them. Some of you will remember, and I promise not to go on for much longer, some of you will remember the famous Bush-Indian government agreement. That agreement which enabled India to bypass all regulations and constraints in purchasing nuclear, civil nuclear weapons fuel, but also civil nuclear weapons machine components. Very important, that. It enabled India to bypass it and not to have to meet the requirements that have been laid on all countries trading in this area. It even broke through the specific commitments of the nuclear suppliers group, the ones that supply the modern technology for the infrastructure for creating civil nuclear power, but equally for creating military nuclear power. Uh, it simply broke through it and, in effect, George Bush just threw it away. It was a disaster. It has been the single most weakening factor, and I have to say, I will make one remark to Cypria, I think Cypria should have made much more of it. I think it has been a huge weakness. It has then was immediately paralleled by a parallel agreement between China and Pakistan, not forgetting these two are profound enemies, which did exactly the same thing. It set off the nuclear suppliers group uh, regulations and requirements. It enabled Pakistan to deal with China in getting nuclear fuels without actually subjecting them to the same kind of strictures. And if you look at Wikipedia and you read it with some interest, the evidence that there are weak structures in Pakistan, and to put it very bluntly, in particular, there is a deep division between the civil government and the intelligence services of Pakistan, which have been rather ready to, shall we say, cooperate to some extent with terrorism if it's directed at India, not at anywhere else in the world, then you can see just how scary it is for that agreement to have been reached. So two of our three are out, effectively out with the four strictures of the NPT and the IAEA. The final one, Israel, and both, uh, both our colleague from Cypri and Mary Andes all mentioned this, absolutely right. The NPT just got away with it because they committed themselves to a UN Secretary General organized conference on a Middle East nuclear-free zone. Brilliant. But stop and think for a moment what is absolutely fundamental to that. What is fundamental to that is the total elimination of Israel's policy of not answering any questions at all, never saying whether it is or isn't a nuclear power, never saying whether it has any missiles or not, never saying what power they would have if they were known to exist. This extraordinary magic, it's not like the invisible man in a magic conjuring set, who isn't there and is there, who's listed on the front but inside there isn't one. That's what Israel has heavily relied on the last 30 years, and it's not compatible with a nuclear-free zone in the Middle East. It can't be. You can't have a nuclear-free zone where one country says nothing 
and everybody else says, we've got no nuclear powers, come and inspect. So I think that that's going to be an Achilles heel. I'm very worried about it, because although I think the intention is absolutely right, and I think that it would be very exciting if you could get it, I fear that the present position of Israel is, makes it close to impossible, I would say, and will only become possible if the United States were willing, as it has never been so far, to bring huge pressure to bear on Israel, including threats of, for example, ending the very large program of military aid. Well, I'll stop there, um, but I want to put before you the good things, and there are some remarkable good things, particularly as between Russia sorry, and the United States. There are some scary things, which are actually much more to be seen in Asia than they are to be seen across the uh, Russian-US border, so to speak. And the final thought I will leave with you, it's a very fundamental thought. Nuclear deterrence doesn't work. doesn't work at all if you're looking at a country where the relationship of the <coughs> government to its civilians doesn't exist. In short, deterring North Korea is a logical absurdity. You cannot uh, deter a country totally concerned with saving the regime, utterly uninterested in saving the country and its citizens. And that's why I think, while Iran is complicated and difficult, it will be possible, I think, at the end to reach some kind of compromise with Iran. The reason North Korea terrifies me is I think we're actually looking not at a rogue state, but at a psychotic state. And that means that all the logical concepts of deterrence and non-deterrence really don't operate with a country like that. So better go out and pray. Maybe the only way we know how to deal with North Korea. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's wonderful that people like Shirley Williams and Des Brown are doing so much to further the cause of nuclear disarmament. Uh, Shirley said you have to be an interventionist chair. So I'd like to start by making a couple of points. One is really where you left off. I mean, I agree that deterrence doesn't work if you're dealing with psychotic states. But if you assume that deterrence only works when there's a degree of sanity, what is the point of deterrence at all? Because um, if you're sane, you're not going to kill millions of people on the other side. And I think that's a point that needs to be made very loudly because it's very difficult to understand, particularly in a world uh, where we're concerned about humanitarian law, we're concerned about the death of civilians, we're banning cluster munitions, why we don't have the same attitude to nuclear weapons. The second point which relates to that I wanted to make was that I'm very struck that at the moment, we seem to be dealing with nuclear weapons in a trajectory that we inherited from the Cold War. So we're going along the sort of type of arms control negotiations that during the Cold War were really meant to manage very difficult relationships. And one of the points that's actually been made to me by Russian colleagues is the problem with that approach the START approach, and maybe even to some extent the non-proliferation approach, is that it somehow also renews the Cold War mentality. People start thinking in terms of numbers and opposites, and shouldn't we be trying to get away from that trajectory and thinking about a different direction? 
And the third point, really, I wanted to make was about Europe, going back to some of the things that Des Brown said. It seems to me that if we can talk about the Mid a Middle East uh, weapons of mass destruction free zone, it ought to be possible to talk about a European weapons of mass destruction free zone. Surely that ought to be easier than the Middle East. What are the obstacles? Well, theater nuclear weapons, which he discussed, uh, Russian theater nuclear weapons on the European part of Russia, France, and I'm assuming we aren't an obstacle because we only would be too happy to find some excuse to get rid of nuclear weapons respectively. Um, and in the French case, I think it's not quite as different from us because I think we're both facing the same economic problem. We actually cannot afford to have nuclear weapons and to continue to make a contribution to crisis zones, to UN peacekeeping, to Afghanistan. We both happen to be very good at those things. And if you ask me what makes Britain, gives Britain and France a reputation in the world, it's actually not having nuclear weapons. It's the fact that British and French troops are really rather good at dealing with crisis situations. And it honestly looks, and if I look at this strategic defense review, we are really harming our ability to do that kind of thing in order to be able to pay not just the Trident actually because that's off the, but for order to pay for long-term programs. And the French are facing exactly the same crisis. So I actually think there are more opportunities to start thinking about this than is generally assumed and we ought to put that on the table as well. I don't know if you want to come back to me now or whether no, I should, I think we should uh, open it up people and ask yeah. people to yeah. uh, raise questions. Who, who would like? Yes. So do say who you are. Hi. Um, Oscar Palma from uh, International Relations LSE. I have a question for Dr. Ian Anthony. Uh, I'm just wondering if there is any observation at all of all of those elements that create the possibility for non-state actors to either build, uh, buy, steal nuclear weapons, or at least uh, build a uh, dirty bomb. Shall I let you answer that straight away? Because we haven't usually have a large number. You, uh, yes, I mean, you've raised the question, really, of how to strengthen nuclear security. I guess that's really what's underpinning. Um, your question. Uh, of course, that's been a very central concern for a lot of governments ever since certainly 2001. In fact, stretching back beyond that, um, the physical protection of nuclear material has been a very important concern because without fissile material, you can't build uh, a nuclear weapon of any kind, and fissile material doesn't exist in nature. It has to be produced, and uh, producing it is not easy. Um, so making sure that the um, capacity to do that remains in authorized hands has always been a, a very central concern. Uh, now, after 2001, um, there have been a number of uh, documents, um, statements by non-state actors who plan mass impact terrorism attacks that they would like to acquire this capability. But we have, to be honest, relatively little evidence that they've made any serious progress towards acquiring that capability. Um, 
what would that mean in practical terms? It could mean stealing a usable nuclear weapon from a weapon state. And there, the country which has been of greatest concern in the early 1990s was the Soviet Union, where you had the breaking up of this country which had a huge arsenal of nuclear weapons. Um, and that's why for most of the 1990s there were strenuous efforts by the United States in particular to help Russia consolidate and account for its nuclear weapons and put them into safe storage sites. Uh, it's true to say that there was a period between around 1994 and 1995 where I don't think anyone could hand on heart make a, a claim that we had a very clear picture of what was happening in the former Soviet Union. So one couldn't say with complete certainty that nothing escaped at that point. But certainly so far we have no evidence that uh, Soviet or Russian nuclear weapons have found their way to non-state actors. Of the other countries, the one which is usually pointed to as a cause for concern is Pakistan. Um, because um, there is significant evidence that the Pakistani armed forces are penetrated by people who have at least ideological sympathies with some of the non-state actors of concern. Uh, but again, you know, we have consistent assurances by Pakistan and from the armed forces of Pakistan that they have put in place adequate security measures and we know that they work um, with the United States uh, to improve those security measures. Um, the question of how to prevent a nuclear security incident of a different kind, for example, uh, the theft of nuclear material from the civilian fuel cycle, uh, from a specialized research institute, for example, which has a research reactor which depends on HEU fuel, or to cause a, um, a sabotage of a nuclear facility which would lead to a failure of the safety systems of that facility. These are really the central issues which are taken up in the work plan which was agreed in April 2010 at the Nuclear Security Summit in Washington. And that's a very high priority, certainly for the Obama administration. Um, if you look at the priorities laid out in the Prague speech, uh, disarmament, meaning the elimination of nuclear weapons, is something he expected to achieve over a roughly 50-year timetable. Uh, Non-proliferation was something which he expected to achieve over a roughly a decade. Uh, but nuclear security is something he intended to achieve within his first term as president. So nuclear security is a very high priority, certainly for the United States. And I think if you look at the work plan which came out of the security summit, um, a lot of countries signed up to that agenda and now it will be very important to monitor over the next three to five years that countries actually implement what they promised um, as part of the work plan that came out of the, the Washington summit. And I agree very much with what Des Brown said, that that's a place where the European countries have a strong uh, responsibility to take a leadership role because we have countries in Europe which are very important within the civilian nuclear fuel cycle on a global basis. Um, so this is an area where Europe really could and should um, exercise a leadership role. Yes, in the front here. Have we got a couple of other people as well? Yeah. So why don't I take three this time? Oh, I'll take three and then I'll come back to you later. And okay. Uh, yes, uh, Glenn Siegel. I'm currently working with the. Uh, the Kuwait Ministry of Defense, I'm just on a short holiday. I hope my suntan doesn't show too badly around you. <laughs> um, the stuff I'm actually working on now, which, which actually relates to this, is a very big concern not on nuclear weapons itself, but on delivery systems. 
and not just the actual nuclear delivery systems, which is the main cost factor, which we might say, because nuclear weapons are self are cheap. That's uh, in the UK's, that's the submarines and so forth. Um, the actual nuclear weapon is cheap. But our concern actually is the delivery systems which major Western and Chinese and a resurgent now of Russian defense industries are selling around the world, which leads to an escalation or potential escalation, which makes it desirable for certain countries to then acquire nuclear weapons or think about acquiring nuclear weapons as a consequence of an escalation of their neighbor or their region's acquisition of very sophisticated conventional delivery systems. We can talk about how Saudi Arabia is now acquiring an F-35 capability, which destabilizes the region and creates some sort of fear syndrome in the region. So I'd like to address a question of, are we not, or are our defense industries not, creating a situation which could potentially lead to an escalation that will have a tendency for certain paranoia to acquire some sort of deterrent, whether it's nuclear or chemical or biological. Paul, Paul Schultz, LSE and, and other places. Um, I'd like to talk about... Th question about theatre weapons in Europe. Uh, first of all, how helpful is it to use this progressive, non-progressive rhetoric? If you hang out in Vilnius or Warsaw or Ankara, um, there's a kind of pushback if, if they hear that, um, because they'd say they have rather more pressing geopolitical risks than people safely in Western or, or Central Europe. So um, I guess they'd ask, and they, they do ask, what, it, what would be done to substitute for the theater nuclear weapons? You may not believe in them, but deterrence is about reassurance too, and they feel somewhat reassured. So uh, there are mentions of things which could be done to make up for the security deficit would appear, that would appear, but what exactly would they be, and how would they avoid um, upsetting the reset with, with the Russians, who might be equally perturbed by uh, the re-establishment of conventional forces in, on NATO's east, eastern borders. Um, and then, I guess, how important is this? Is, it, is this worth, we hear it's urgent, we hear it's vital, but is it worth risking a rupture within NATO about this? I mean, it might be, but, but what exactly would one expect to follow on from the removal of the 200 or so uh, American nuclear weapons in Europe while there would presumably remain the 3,000, 4,000, nobody's quite sure, Russian weapons, and all the problems in the Middle East. Okay, over there. Hi, I'm Sandy Iono Butcher uh, with Pugwash. And I was just, I was intrigued to watch what happened with the panelists, and I just wanted, wondered if you could comment more. Um, Ian, you started off by saying that one of the big accomplishments of the Obama administration was that they brought back the, he rekindled the idea that arms control as an instrument of security building was back on the scene. And then Mary, in summing up things, said that some people are worried that the problem with the START approach is that it renews the arms control mentality. 
And yet, part of what the focus in looking forward is, is on this idea of a WMD or nuclear weapons free zone in the Middle East. And I'm wondering uh, how we get to solving some of these problems in other parts of the world, the Middle East or South Asia or other complicated areas, if we're not actually going to use the, uh, you know, the lessons that have been learned on arms control and confidence building measure through dialogue and talking to other parties because I think it's, it, it, it's, it's not just that there's a disagreement here. I think we're all very confused about this right now and people in other parts of the world don't trust the process enough to move forward. And if even once the U.S. and Russia are at a point where they should be able to make some agreement, it's not possible to actually seal the deal. Why should they even start in these more complicated regions and relationships? So I, I don't know if, if there's really an answer to that, but I, I was very intrigued to see that. I mean, there was an art, the, the op-ed recently that said, is the arms control treaty dead? You know, yeah. where are we now? So any thoughts that you have on this would be appreciated. Jamie Rubens. Um, and we had a, we've got one over here, two over here. Okay, well, let's take all, all of you and then we'll come back to the panel. No, one here, here and one here. Hi. Oops, there you go. Hi, my name is Tim Street from the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Um, my question was about, um, following on really from Shirley Williams' point about the US-India nuclear deal. Um, earlier this year, um, uh, David Cameron signed a um, nuclear cooperation pact with um, India. And I was just uh, wanting some comments from the panel on this, um, if they equated it in the same terms as Shirley Williams was describing with the US, um, what form they think it will take. If, was there, if they know of any rules restricting things uh, so to ensure it would be proliferation proof that you wouldn't get crossed over to the Indian military if there was any inspections I'm not aware that there were any inspections written into that deal and if the top level group plan or have done any work on that with the government for example with advising them or anything like that thanks hi my name is Jacob Thomas um, I've studied a lot of issues of global governance um, at great length, but not this one. So I have a very naive and fundamental, if fundamental question about this. Um, if we can assume that there's a security dilemma that escalates armed races between different states, and uh, it would seem to me that obtaining a weapon uh, for the first time, like Pakistan and India did, would have a greater marginal return to that country's security than accumulating the 99th or 100th weapon or the nth weapon. Um, and so it interests me is how this arm race continues to escalate uh, when you know it, it, would, it wouldn't necessarily, there would be decreasing marginal returns to security. And my, what I'm wondering is why is it, what is the rationale or how is it rational to, to continue to accumulate weapons now we know from uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, you know, perhaps is an example of you know what could could happen. But we don't have so many uh, examples of, of what, what 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 could result. So, if given that, and you can, when you consider uh, the deaths that have resulted from all types of other types of violence, like civil war and other things, even if we assume that we couldn't put our resources into security into other uh, forms of uh, you know, social welfare, even within security. Um, it, do you, any of you feel that, you know, in terms of your, the normative basis of where you put your research energies, you might 
want to look at other, other issues? Do you ever question that, that you might achieve more in other areas? And what sort of drives you to continue to uh, struggle for this, which seems to be a, a, lo a lofty but quite a difficult goal? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll leave that one to you. <laughs> I'm going to take us again in the same order. So I'm going to let Ian start, and then I'll go Des. Oh, there's one more. Okay. Sorry, I missed you. <laughs> Um, from the speaker, uh, I feel there's a lot of praise of Obama's uh, uh, achievement on arms control. I have a question about uh, his approaches. Like uh, uh, Dr. Anthony said that uh, Obama's approach generally legal binding, uh, want to uh, uh, ratify, transparent. And my question is, this legal binding, how do you... Uh, how this legal binding approach uh, to be effective if you not uh, you see those countries not uh, as legally recognized legally uh, um, like um, uh, as uh, they are not democratic countries, so the lack of uh, legality in a sense, and then if you are not even recognize the legality they're not democrats. How can you have legal bonding with them, uh, such as uh, um, Professor Williams talked about China, Pakistan, and then Israel and North Korea? All those difficult countries. How do you deal with it? That might be. Okay, Ian. Yes, well, I will try to address all of them, but. Um, just a couple, and in fact, I think two of the, several of the questions are linked in certain aspects. Um, part of the reason why I think there's been a renewed interest in arms control as an instrument for uh, security building is that during the period where we didn't really have much of a serious commitment to arms control, and the assumption was made that if we create a permissive uh, political environment, the decisions about force postures will take care of themselves, hasn't turned out to be terribly convincing. Um, and so the question is, what's the alternative uh, to doing this in a legally binding, verifiable, transparent framework? You know, if you take, for example, the question of the uh, presidential nuclear initiatives, uh, um, which were taken in the early 1990s, which were essentially a, a handshake, you have the situation, 20 years later, that Paul can put the question, and include in it the statement that Russia may have 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 non-strategic nuclear weapons. Because we didn't have this framework, we frankly have no idea how Russia implemented the PNIs. Um, so I think this is part of the reason that people are, are revisiting the question, is that the alternatives haven't turned out to be terribly convincing. Um, that doesn't mean that arms control can solve all problems. That would clearly be an absurd expectation and an absurd weight to pin on arms control that it can somehow solve all security problems. But it can be one part um, of, a, of, a, of a solution, perhaps. Um, if we look at the question of delivery systems, uh, I mean, I think the question is really an excellent one, and it also is a is part of the discussion which probably has to take place in the framework of the um, effort to, to move forward the agenda on the Middle East WMD free zone. Um, the reality <coughs> is that at the moment <coughs> there is no credible 
um, process to address delivery systems. Um, they're simply outside the framework of, uh, of arms control, frankly, apart from the bilateral agreements between the United States um, and Russia. Um, if you look at the situation with regard to combat aircraft, you have a situation where in the Middle East you will have one country, Iran, which is subject to ever-tightening sanctions, which make it more or less impossible for it to modernize its conventional armed forces, and countries all around it which continuously modernize their conventional armed forces. Um, and if your point was that this strengthens the view in Tehran that they need to seek other avenues to preserve what they see as their legitimate right to security, um, then of course the natural tendency is for them to at least keep the option open for nuclear. Um, if you look at the other technical approaches that we've tried to take to restricting transfers of delivery systems, for example export controls, um, they're necessary and a lot of work has been done to strengthen them. But we've also learned, I think, beyond any reasonable doubt, that they can't, you can't solve what are essentially political questions using technical fixes. Um, we've had MTCR in place since 1987, and all of the countries we're concerned about continue to make incremental progress on the range, accuracy of their ballistic missiles. Um, we've had sanctions in place uh, for the last five years on uh, North Korea, ever tightening, restricted, monitored, and then we learned they've managed during that period to stand up an enrichment facility with thousands of centrifuges. Um, so these technical fixes can be necessary, but they can never be sufficient. Um, and, and, and until that dynamic is addressed, uh, it probably won't make much progress towards the WMD-free zone. So really what the conference has to talk about in 2012 is not a WMD-free zone, but what are, the, um, what are the things that you have to put in place to eventually move to a WMD-free zone, including tackling some of these underlying um, political problems which create the security dilemma that was referred to by another question. Thank you very much. Dennis. Um, spoiled for choice, really, in these uh, excellent questions, and I won't return to, I mean, I agree substantially with what Ian has said. I mean, I thought Glenn's question was, was a very good question, and, uh, and, and I mean, I, I don't wish as a politician to shift the responsibility onto the arms industry, you know, I mean, it's a regulated industry, or it should be a regulated industry at least, um, and, 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 you know, I recognise that this whole discussion sits within an imbalance of um, conventional forces. The most striking imbalance, of course, is between the NATO alliance and and Russia, you know, in the sense of, 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 of the space that we share, share here, and we live in, in Europe, and, and, you know, we need to find models of looking at these issues of security, which just go beyond the restrictions of, of, of the discussions that we've had thus far about arms control. But that having been said, um, I mean, in the, in, 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 you know, in the absence of some other formula to make the progress that we need, to keep the momentum going in this area, other than the traditional arms control discussions, particularly since 95% you know, of these nuclear weapons in the world are in the hands of two countries who appear, at least um, to some significant degree, willing to talk to each other about reducing their numbers. And I'm reluctant to move away from that model, although I recognise that in Europe we could start 
to have the sort of discussions that would broaden that uh, more and, and, and look at assured security as opposed to deterrence, you know, in the space that we occupy together, taking into account people's views of each other's uh, conventional systems. So I don't have an answer to your, 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 your uh, challenge, Glenn, as to how we do this, but it certainly doesn't, I don't think, just involve putting the burden on to uh, the arms industry and but, but part of um, what we hope to do at the European Leadership Network in terms of engaging institutions of Europe on these issues is to engage the industry, not just the arms industry but the nuclear energy industry and, and discussing their responsibilities for our collective security about their behaviour and we don't do enough of that. Um, the, the, the second point I would, I, 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 I just want to augment something that Shirley said and it was raised um, from a gentleman over here about, um, about India, from Tim, I think his name was. Um, the answer to your specific question is that the top-level group in, in the UK Parliament has not specifically looked at this issue, but um, increasingly I'm becoming interested in this issue of India's relationship, not just with the United Kingdom, but with the United States of America. And we have to be careful that we don't just kind of bush good Obama, uh, bush bad Obama gush good this, because... President Obama has just come back from India in which he did two things which I think um, were understandable in the kind of geopolitical circumstances he was in, but I think fell into the category of dangerous um, in terms of, uh, in, in of short-term fix but long-term problem. I mean, he said he supported India's ambition to join the nuclear suppliers group. So he adopted by that um, the, the actions of the previous president. And he also said, and I thought this was even more dangerous, that he supported uh, um, India's uh, ambition um, to become a member of the Security Council of the United Nations. Now, I do too, but I would much rather have said in a much broader context, not just a nuclear weapon state. Um, and, uh, and, and so, so you know, I think we need to appreciate that in saying things to one country, trying to get them into the structures that, that, that we think they should be coming to, that these, these messages are heard differently and we've, we've heard you know, from surely what China and Pakistan got up to in the immediate aftermath of Bush's agreement um, with the Indians. So we have to be very careful and that is an area that we will need to look to. But the final point, and I'll leave, I'll leave the f more philosophical question of um, wh why the diminishing returns of arms races to Shirley because I think she's much more equipped to answer that than I am about other people's views. Um, I want to specifically address the point that Paul made because I think it's important and I want to actually challenge the underlying assumptions you know, of what you said because, and I'm sure you've done this too, but it depends who you talk to when you do it. I mean, I have put myself about Europe over the last six months talking to people just about the extent to which they are reassured by the presence of the eight nuclear weapons. Now, if you start the conversation by saying to people just how important are these weapons to you, they will give you the answer that they think you want to hear. But if you start your conversation across Europe with people saying, what is it you're actually worried about? What are the threats that you, on this margin of Europe or that you know, margin of Europe or in this geopolitical set of circumstances, what are the threats that you're concerned about? then you get a long list of concerns. And if you go to Ankara, you get... The first concern that you get is about terrorist threats coming in from northern Iraq, from Kurdistan. That's upset. I mean, whether it's, 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 it's um, you know, an existential threat to the country or not, it obsesses them. Right. Um, 
they, uh, they have a very clear, modern, progressive foreign policy for their region, which has served them very well over um, this, this uh, government's term of office from their perspective, and it has allowed them to maintain the sort of relationship between an Islamic majority and the state that they want to have on the edge of Europe and their long-term ambition of membership of the European Union and a number of other things. So if you, if you talk to them or the Poles or indeed the Baltic states um, about, about what, are, what is the hierarchy of threats that you think you face and how do we deal them, then you could be there for the rest of your life before you would get to something that nuclear weapons are the answer to. Um, now, you're right. You know, we do need to provide reassurance and we need to be conscious that in providing that reassurance we're not starting the sort of arms race again or reinforcing uh, the paranoia of neighbours that they have about the threats that they may face or that their uh, allies will, uh, will bring to their borders. All of these things are, are desperately important. You know, but, but you know, we have to, I think, in our conversations and in our ambitions of political leadership, have a kind of hierarchy of ambitions. You know, so if at the top of my political agenda at the moment is the reduction of the salience and the number of nuclear weapons in the world. Um, now, I'm prepared to address the other issues, uh, but I do not believe that these nuclear weapons give anybody assurance. You know, either in Vilnius or Ankara or, uh, I made a note of the other capital that you identified, um, I, can't, I can't see Media. it immediately here, uh, <laughs> Vilnius, Warsaw or Ankara. I don't believe they do. What they do is that they give them a relationship, particularly with the United States of America and therefore by extended NATO, in which they are important. So senior officials and politicians in the Turkish government will freely say to me in private, it's all we have left to some degree in terms of our relationship with the United States of America. If we give these up, then what have we to show our people about our, you know, our membership of NATO? Why should we be a member of this Western uh, transatlantic alliance if there is no presence of that for us to be able to give to our people? So you know, we need to move away from the idea that somehow these people are reassured by the presence of these weapons. They're intelligent enough to realize that they are of no military efficacy. You know, and, and the two groups of people who know this are the United States military and the Russian military. So what sort of a deterrent are they? The United States don't want them. They don't want them in Europe. They want to get rid of them. But they don't appear to have the confidence to say to the European allies, that's what we want you to think, so tell us that's what you think too. You know, this is the most sophisticated political military alliance the world has ever seen, and it behaves sometimes in such an immature fashion that you wonder what these people have been saying to each other all of these years. And you know, I was one of the ministers that used to do it, and I know what they've been saying to each other. So, uh, so I, you know, I, I, I fundamentally disagree with you about the importance of these weapons. Um, the second point I make to you is, the Russians have 5,000 of these, arguably. Is it two, three, five? It doesn't matter. There are lots of them anyway. Our argument seems to be that we should persuade them to move them towards the Chinese border. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, well, but, but, that, but, but, it's, it's, but think about it more in relation to the reaction of the Chinese rather than whether they can bring them back towards us again. You know, um, I mean, is this the world that we really want to live in, that we progress the destabilization further and further away from our control? 
You know, I mean, we need to we need to just recognise for a start that over the whole course of the Cold War, with these weapon systems, we justified their existence because of an imbalance of conventional weapons with the Russians. The one thing that we conditioned them to understand was that argument. Now we have an imbalance of conventional weapons the other way around, and they're playing it back to us. So we need to find some structure in which we can have an honest, open discussion about this. And if it's not an arms control structure, I don't know what it is. But certainly us in Europe need to start recognising the diversity of the world that we live in in Europe, the nature of the threats that we actually face, and start owning up to the sort of capabilities and investments that we need to make to assure our people, instead of kidding ourselves, that we're doing all of this and giving each other great assurance by the existence of weapon systems in our presence that none of us believe has any have any military purpose. Now, I make one final point about this, which is really important, which is we're going to lose these weapons anyway for this reason. They require a delivery system known as a dual-capable aircraft. The countries that have them will require to modernise these, these, these dual-capable aircraft. There is no possibility that the German Bundestag, that the Dutch Parliament or the, the Netherlands Parliament, the, the Belgian Parliament, if there is one, and it's not a divided country, you know, uh, uh, um, or, or that the Italians, who don't even admit to their people that they have them, will make the investment in these circumstances to replace the aircraft as they become redundant. So we're going to lose these weapons anyway. So progressive or otherwise, and I don't really mind, you know, I mean, I mean to be honest with you, I'm less, less interested as I get older in people's motives for doing the right thing. So if they don't think they're progressive, if they just think they're a practical answer to a problem of spending money in the future and they want to get rid of them, that suits me. But we're going to get rid of them anyway. And the question I pose to our European neighbours and our fellow allies in NATO is, do you want us to salami slice, lose these, on the basis that you're not prepared to invest in them and let the Russians just wait us out? Or do you actually want to make some contribution, even if it is a comparatively small contribution, to the dynamic of disarmament, a reassurance to the rest of the world that we're serious about what we're doing and doing something and making constant progress by getting rid of them in a planned way in the context of our ambition for a world free of nuclear weapons? Now, I know which of those two I like best. And I'm going to go around Europe during the course of the NATO's review of these weapons, trying to persuade other countries that they should own up to the logic of this argument. Now, we will have to deal with other things, and I understand that, but that's actually the NATO I want to be a member of. Well, thank you very much. And finally, Sherman. Yeah, I'll be very brief, because I think a lot of what I might want to say has been said by others and said very well. Um, I only really want to put two things in. One is I have a very slight disagreement with Des. I think the, uh, the distrust uh, that existed between Russia and the United States in the Cold War has to some extent been replaced by a distrust within the alliance. Um, my experience of going to Poland and Turkey and places like that is that there is some distrust of whether the nuclear umbrella actually operates over them. It certainly says so in NATO, but unlike, for example, the relationship with Germany or with the United Kingdom, where the um, existence of the nuclear umbrella is taken for granted to some extent because we are very old allies. When you move to Eastern Europe, you face the fact, A, that people do not entirely trust the nuclear umbrella, and therefore they want a hostage, and TNW is a hostage, 
to ensure that the Americans would come in. That certainly multiplied since Obama became president because they had much less belief that he would actually be willing to mount a deterrent on their behalf. And the second thing, where I don't entirely agree with Des, is I think if you're looking at Eastern Europe and Central Europe, uh, well, I should say Eastern Europe, really, um, there is still a, a deeply embedded attitude that the Cold War hasn't really completely gone away. I mean, you only have to talk to the Poles or the Czech Republic to see how profound is the suspicion still of what Russia might do. And that was enhanced hugely uh, by the Georgia business. I mean, I think the Georgia business, doubtier though it was, on behalf of Georgia, nevertheless did suddenly strengthen the doubts that some of these countries had about whether Russia had actually changed its style and its philosophy and its objectives. On the much bigger issue, I'll, I'll be very quick again, um, I think that what we need to do is to look at what I might call track two. By track two, I mean the thing that is beginning to emerge, which is the recognition that in the case of quite a number of these issues we're talking about, um, not least the whole question of whether we can uh, move ahead with the legal structures, um, is in fact the absolute necessity of regarding many of these questions as being about regional um, relations of power. If you look at Iran, if you look at, for that matter, Israel, you can't really get beyond the regional fear unless you begin to bring in all the players into some wider regional movement towards, for example, nuclear-free zones. Now, it may well be that Europe would be easier for the reasons we've already talked about. But I think in the case of the Middle Eastern um, co conference which is coming up, it would have been much wiser to turn it into a much broader regional discussion about how one dealt with the issues in the Middle East uh, than to leave it as primarily about nuclear weapons. And I think what might be true about Israel and the Middle East, and for that matter, Iran, um, is even truer when you come to some of the issues um, that arise in, for example, the Taiwan Straits and so forth between China and Taiwan. I think there's lots of room for track two, and I think we have made the mistake of looking too much at the specifically nuclear weapons issues if it wasn't embedded in much larger uh, regional issues. Well, end. this is finally the end, and thank you very much to everybody. I thought it was a great discussion and very stimulating and very high level, even if we were small, and there's a lot more to discuss. <laughs> so thanks. thanks. so sinister when you say that. <laughs>